the word of the Lord. Hey, good to see you all today. I am thrilled to be here, not least of which because there's no one behind me and I don't have to go in circles. If you know what that joke means, great. If not, let it go. Um, But uh, I'm so deeply grateful for Jim and Lisa and their friendship. Um, They've become pastors of pastors in this city, in case you don't know. Um, I'm grateful for the gift of leadership in Tom Olson and for staff here like Kristen and Andy and so many more who have a passion for the body of Christ. Um, I'm, I'm thankful for you, Calvary. 20 years ago, you planted a church across town called Mars Hill. And whatever your current image is about or whatever you imagine about Mars Hill, uh, know that Jesus is alive and well and is the center of who we are. And that the spirit of God is doing incredible things in these days. And we're deeply grateful for the ways in which you have cared and supported. And so as a witness bearer of Mars Hill to say thank you for what you have enabled there. I'm deeply grateful for ways that many of you have been so faithful here and we are recipients of your faithfulness. Um, There's a word for me that I think has come up for you from God that I just wanna sow into this place. And uh, it's the word legacy. Um, I think what happens over the course of time with wineskins of how God sort of reinvents the church in every generation, moves towards cities right now as a massive direction across the country and across the world as the church is thriving in urban centers. What I just want you to know of what's happening in the kingdom of God in Grand Rapids, so much of it is connected to the heart of this body of Christ. And so much is connected that so many people are moving into Grand Rapids Rapids from other parts of the country have no idea of the faithfulness that has come out of this community that is enabling kingdom work in the city. So whether people connect the dots, that it can, so much of what God is doing has come from the faithfulness of this place. I just wanna sow and speak over you the word legacy, that this is a legacy church in the city of Grand Rapids. And so I honor you. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here this morning and uh, really excited about what God wants to do today. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter two, and we'll be in the first 12 verses this morning. Uh, we're in a series of John at Mars Hill, so I figured I'd just move this over from last week into today. Um, and that's page 861, if you have the brown scriptures in the back of your seats. Uh, as we do that, I, I just wanna say, this is a passage you've probably heard before, no doubt. But I also wanna suggest that um, there might be some re-exploration of some things that might be hidden in here that are really worth re-looking at this morning. It would be hard to overstate the commitment of the Jewish people in the first century to ritual purification. It would be hard to overstate that. All over Israel, you have what's called mikvah or mikvahot in the plural of that. These pools are all over that place. Everywhere you go, all the way from the Essene camps in the desert, all the way to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In fact, when you come out of the Southern stairs of the Temple Mount, what you find are pools. You find mikvahot everywhere. So it's like when you're reading the book of Acts, I don't know if you ever like question functionality. Like how did this actually happen? Like where did they actually go be baptized for, the rece- for receiving the Holy Spirit? And you stand on the Southern steps and it connects with you. Oh, well, there's pools everywhere. No wonder this is where they went. This is where the Spirit fell 
as Jewish people from all over the world gathered on that Pentecost and God fell on them and they were baptized into the body of Christ as the first church. Now, in order for these pools to be filled, you had to have what was called living water. Now, what's the challenge of that, right? Living water comes from the hand of God. It's unaltered by humans, which are impure. We need pure water to come down in order for ritual purification to take place. And where do you get that living water? And where do you get that living water? Rain. And where do you get that living water? Springs. And where do you get that living water? Rivers. Now that's quite a bit of a problem, especially in a place that is known for its deserts, that water isn't copious. You get it in certain seasons. And once you scoop up that water in your clay pot, once you scoop up that water in your leather bag, once you scoop up that water in your wooden receptacle, it is no longer pure. It has become defiled by human impurity. But you were allowed to gather water into cisterns and from there to collect it in a stone jar. Because stone at this time were viewed as impervious to human impurities. Other materials such as leather, clay, wood were not considered impervious. So it had to be stone. So by the first century in Jerusalem, it had become the center of the stone vessel industry. We have the Petoskey stone. They had limestone. Limestone everywhere. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So here's an actual picture. In 1969, they excavated Old Jerusalem and they found these stone pots in this, these living quarters. Just stuff like this was everywhere, lying around. It was a massive industry. And that has a lot to do with the wedding at Cana. The story of Cana is not primarily about the water. The story at Cana is not primarily about the wine. The story of Cana is primarily not even about a wedding. The story of Cana is about those stone jars. And when you figure out what's going on with those jars, you figure out the meaning of John's story. It's what's called a sign, Simeon in the Greek. In John, we have at least seven of them. And Jesus did them that we might believe. Here's what I'll say, and this is for someone here. If you follow the signs, you'll miss Jesus. If you follow Jesus over the course of your life, you'll see the signs of God. It's an amazing thing. Many people have gotten lost trying to follow signs. Many people stumble onto a transformative life when you bury your life into the life of Jesus. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But moments for these signs, they were in order for the people to believe. Now, what are signs? Signs are moments that point to something in order to point to something else. That the signs weren't the point. The signs were to say something about this because I'm trying to say something about that. So that's what the signs were designed to do. By looking at this, I want you to see that is the purpose of a sign. And in this story, the jars aren't even about the jars. The jars are actually pointing to something beyond the jars. Chapter two of John, verse one 
On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. There's tons of theories, by the way, about this third day. I won't go into all of them, but the one I like the best are that weddings at this time are seven-day celebrations. And by day three, the wine is gone. Whoops. This is like throwing a 4th of July party and running out of the all-day IPA by noon, right? Grand Rapidians will understand that. The wine runs out on the third day and it's embarrassing. And what it's designed to do, I think this third day could mean a bunch of things, but I think what it's designed to do is to say there's tension building here. People are saying the wine is gone and we're only halfway through the week. What are we going to do? Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Here's an extra credit observation. I'm so glad we serve a God who shows up to parties. We do not have a gospel that speaks of a hermit God who came in flesh, spending his years alone, who was kind of a cranky holy man meditating in a monastery. We serve a God who's social. And this means we are dealing with a God who's not content to only show up on Sundays, but is longing for you to discern the presence on Monday morning as you go to work and in your families and in your neighborhoods and in all of the cracks of life. God's saying, I want to show up. I love when you invite me to the party. Okay, that's another sermon another time. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So look at this word woman for a second. Is this a harsh rebuke? I don't think so. Be very careful exporting your 21st century understanding into the sacred text of the first century. I don't think that's what's happening here. First of all, this is the same word that's used when Jesus is on a cross preparing family for his mother, knowing that he's going to go to the cross and to the resurrection. Saying to John, here's your new mom. Mom, here's your new son. Love one another. It's the same word. He's saying, woman, this is your son. I think what's happening here is Jesus is beginning to create some distance between he and his earthly mother. I think what he's saying is, I have not come to be just the son of you in your home. I have become, I've come to become the son of God for the world. And you need to understand that my call and my vocation is taking me to a different scale. And he says this, my hour. Well, what hour are we talking about? Well, when you look at John and you go through the chapter after chapter, and you move toward him, moving toward the cross. Listen to these three scriptures that later solve the mystery of what is he talking about? My hour has not yet come. Verse chapter 12, verse 23 of John, Jesus replied, the hour has, has come for the son of man to be glorified. John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. John 13, one, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now what's interesting is Mary just wants some more wine. 
And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What you're getting into, it's gonna happen then. It's not yet. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's something that you're asking me to do with this that is about that. And I wanna begin to pull that off for my disciples so they they can understand what I'm actually here to do. See, what happens is Jesus's entire life is driving toward a pivotal moment called Golgotha. And in a strange way, Mary here, without realizing it, is accelerating him toward that moment. Because as Jesus goes public with his signs, and as Jesus begins to go public with his ministry, it begins to create all sorts of conflict with the religious establishment and the political domination system. And Mary, not knowing, is accelerating him toward that moment. And he's saying, it's not yet my hour, but an hour is coming that will pierce your heart with many griefs. Nearby six stone jars, verse six. Here it is. Here's the marrow of the text, in my opinion. The kind that were used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's massive. These are jars for pools. Remember, these jars made of stone, made of limestone, they are impervious to impurity. Now, how many were there? How many were there? Six. What is the Hebrew number for completion? Seven. Do you think John might be trying to tell us something? Why would the text say six? Why would he even specify? Why take papyrus to do that? Why take time and intention to write that down? These are six stone vessels for purification purposes. And Jesus will use these stones to flow wine from water. Now that's interesting. What if, what if this these six jars and what happens through them is trying to tell us something about that. You know, John's gospel alone will specify that soldiers come up on the Passover and puncture the side of Jesus, this beautiful vessel and what flows from the side, water, and blood. Figure out what those jars mean and you'll figure out the story. Verse seven, Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim and he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine, like a super Tuscan it must've been. And he, the master of the banquet did not realize where it had come from. Let me say this again. Did not realize where it had come from. This is so my life. How often the gifts of God all around me and I did not realize God in my midst. Who set up the ecosystem that produces oxygen that we have effortlessly been breathing. Who created the sunlight, which is necessary for human life? Thanks be to God, it's out today. Who rains down water so the earth can live? Who designed our bodies to function as mysteriously as they do? 
I might as well be the master. You can insert my name here. Like Jacob, God was in the midst of this and I didn't even know it. Sometimes I say things like, where are you, God, as I take that next breath? He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who drew the water, well, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out choice wine first and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much. But you saved the best till now. But you have saved the best till now. But you have saved the best till now. This is saying something about that. What you have here in this is, is the old covenant, an amazing revelation of God's grace, a purification ceremonial system, annual Passover sacrifices, the temple, the law, all grace from God. But this is about to be fulfilled in that, the new covenant. God in flesh, living the story of Israel, dying for the sin of the world, raised in resurrection life, defeating sin and death, ascending to the Father and sending the Holy Spirit who permeates this room and dwells in your body. Listen, this is so much better than that. Jesus once taught, Something like, hey, many prophets and righteous people, they long to see what you see, Calvary Church. But they didn't see it. And Calvary Church, many of the ancients who went before us, they longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Oh, by the way, what was the temple made of? Stone. Why? Because it needed to be impervious to impurities when the people entered that sacred site. And in just a few verses, Jesus says this. This is in John, same chapter. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Do you think this might mean that? You think he might be talking about the temple to talk about something beyond the temple? Isn't it fitting that Peter and Paul would come along just a little bit later and say, Jesus is the corner. It's all connected. I think first century hearers, when they heard this story John was telling, their neurology, their, their thought patterns must have just connected all of this lighting up, saying, oh my goodness, it's been here the whole time and we didn't realize it. You're actually saying something beyond this moment into something so much more significant. So the jars of Cana are filled with water and out of them flows new wine. And the wine is better than they could have ever imagined. Jesus is the seventh in perfect stone jar. He is the perfect vessel that renews the world. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish purification system. And on the cross, his disciples will soon see in the years to come that this sign of Cana is about that act on the cross where water and blood will flow from an impervious vessel called Jesus. And it will spill out as a covenant to cover the sin of the world and set us free. Calvary, God has not left us. 
God is here. And here's what I want you to consider this morning. He saved the best wine till now. And whether you realize it or not, it is flowing in your direction. You know, I think, I think it's possible that the greatest reality in all of the cosmos is the radical availability of the presence of God. And the hilarity of it is how I remain unaware almost every moment of every day of this generous gift. And he's gonna come and play under us. And just, I just wanna move us to a time of receiving. You know, it would be a good thing for us to come and, oh yeah, I learned some things about the text. It would be a better thing for us to come and just say, I moved into the invitation of the text. This text wants to move you, provoke you, invite you into something beyond just what you have between your skull. Listen, Jesus did not come just for you to have sound doctrine, but a deep encounter with the living God. God is not interested in yesterday's wine. As great as salvation or as great as that moment was back in your teens or in your 20s or in your 30s or whatever it is, what I notice is that Moses' best years come on the back end of his life. And maybe that's true for you. That you don't only have to tell stories of a God who was in your life, but the God who flows right now is inviting you to encounter. Can you imagine if the New Testament had a theology that believed the presence of God was already here? This morning, I, I wanna pray for a new wine in your life. If you feel comfortable with this, I just wanna ask you to just hold your hands out as if God might actually want to drop something into your life, right? No big thing, no walk the aisle, just to say, I'm here. If you're here, let's be here together, God. I wanna check in with that. I want you to imagine that maybe joy is possible in the midst of soul anguish. To consider that peace might actually be able to quench fear in the storm of anxiety that you're feeling today. Perhaps you're holding out a longing for renewed health in the midst of your body breaking down or a new job or a new vision or a new call. Or, or maybe for some of us, it's a renewal of faith because you've been trying to drink last decade's wine for too long and you need a fresh, a fresh moment, a fresh encounter. Jesus would often ask this question before he healed. What do you want me to do for you? I think some of the gaps that many of us feel in encountering the living God come from the fact we haven't clearly articulated what it is that we're after, what we're hoping for, and how God wants to meet you in that. So we just wanna create some space for a moment and just simply ask the question with our hands out. Imagine Jesus is asking you, what do you want me to do for you? So in the quietness of your heart, name that.
We love the cry of that child. It reminds us of what our hearts should be doing, crying out to the living God. This is what I'm holding, Jesus. This is what I'm asking you to do for me. So we wait. We know God isn't a genie, but God does care. And, you know, let's do this. If, if you're willing and able, would you stand with me? Because I think we have a part to play here. Not as, a, um, not as an earning thing for whatever what it was that you're naming. Not as like, God, I'm, I'm now gonna, gonna perform but as a way of stepping into this covenant he's invited us to, this invitation, this relationship. Here's our part. Here's what Mary asked in the story. Do whatever he tells you. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you in our lives? And Mary says, do what he tells you to do. Be obedient. Step into it. Again, it's all grace. It's not an earned thing. It's not an exchange. It's to say, God, I'm gonna meet you where you're asking me to show up because I'm a part of this healing, this renewal, this breakthrough process. Do whatever he tells you. What is God telling you about what you want? You know, as we sing today, maybe it involves yada, raising the hand as the Psalms do over and over to say, God, I look to you, I'm beyond resource. Like a child, I raise my hands to you as if to say, hold me, carry me. Love it when my six-year-old, when she would come up to me and just say, daddy, right? It's beautiful, what a surrendered posture. And maybe that's what God's calling you into this morning or maybe kneeling where you are or maybe seeking prayer with someone around you or maybe calling someone right after the gathering who was on your heart that you just have been avoiding. Whatever it is, here's what I know about what God calls us to. It is rarely within our comfort zone. And here's another thing I think I know. Maybe your comfort zone is overrated. Maybe we empower our comfort zones to a point that detours the breakthrough we're longing for. Choosing comfort is not a thriving spirituality. We're talking about trust and faith in a God that will meet us there. I know you're saying, well, what if God doesn't show up? I'm holding this thing, AJ. What if God doesn't show up? Here's what I know. God doesn't need you to manage his reputation. Yeah, he may not show up the way you want him to. Something will come in the process that will change your heart and be a greater gift. Here's another thing I know. You don't need to manage your reputation. Oh, what if my kids see me kneeling before God, raising my hands? Wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't that be discipleship? For your child to see you going after the heart of God? Wouldn't that be exactly what they need? 
see mom and dad going for it in reckless abandon because new wine is flowing and we don't want to miss that. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Do whatever he tells you. Let's sing together and let's imagine the presence is actually here and let's see what God might do. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.